I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people in the German-speaking humor world that I, I'd say think that think that um, the three two two seven is the closest thing we have to the Urgos. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like it's definitely the earliest, but it's also definitely not yeah. in a technical stematic sense the Urgos of the others. It like an Urgos isn't just the first copy; it's something. It's the origination point that the others branch off from, and it's very clear that that's definitely not how they formed. Independent textual. I like, just the other gloves are independent. Dirk Hagedorn hates Ringbeck now. That's hilarious. It's never really? enough. Hilarious. I have a. He tagged me on Facebook in a Facebook post sometime <laughs> last year where he was like, I'm busy writing a, a workshop on like why I hate Ringbeck. And so I thought I'd tag you. And I was like, thanks, Dirk. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he's given that Ringbeck at least one, that, that workshop at least once now about why Ringbeck is awful. Oh, I wait. Want to, I want to ah. run a workshop on uh, Beringa in contrast <laughs> to Lishenhauer. Uh. I ran a workshop um, on uh, Virgil von Krakow last year, which was a good laugh. I, I remember um, Dirk wanting to hold the workshop Why I Hate um, Ringeck on the, the biggest German-speaking HEMA event this year. It was supposed to be in April. I remember putting the text for the workshop on our website. Oh, uh, now he's not holding it at all. I was hilarious. Maybe I can find it. <laughs> I I still want to do a uh, I still want to do a workshop on um three two two seven A's sword and buckler. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, yeah, I did a, I did a workshop on Virgil von Krakow last year, um, which is of course the postmodern gloss that some guy did by um uh, like uh, neural net. Uh, that was yeah. a good laugh. Um, I, th I think I walked past that and took one look at the bit of paper and was just like, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we got away with it. Um, people's faces when we told them it was all a fake was a good laugh, though. Um, uh, and I'm, I want to do one sometime on uh, the Harmonberg manual. Uh, <laughs> FA2.x. Yeah. See, when are you going to teach a workshop on your um, anti-gloss? Yeah, I, I did one in in my club's Discord. I did a presentation on it and went over the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I guess I'll start proposing it at events. <laughs> See if anybody takes you up on it. Yeah. All right. Hello, everybody. You've been listening to the eighth episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Michael Smoridge. Joining me today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chillister, Stephen Cheney, and T. Key. And last episode, we covered... Uh, what did we cover? Abnehmen taking off, and uh, a couple of wines from a bind created by a Zornhau. And we're moving on to a, a much longer section. So, Steve... Uh, no, Mike. Johanna, do you... Before we start this, can I throw out one comment related to the last week's episode? Go for it. Um, the one thing I, I, I had intended to bring up but did not and was that the techniques are presented not as alternatives in 3227A and Paulus Cal, but as a single sequence of events. And furthermore, when you go into Hans von Speyer's additions, it suggests that they're kind of interchangeable, that you can move back and forth between them depending on what your opponent does. So you might abnehmen and, and then bistek hervida, or you might bistek hervida and then abnehmen once afterwards, and so on. So they're not they're not a cut and dried 
one or the other. They sort of feed into each other in a way, at least cool. according to some authors. Cool. Thanks for that, Michael. Yeah, Hannah, do you want to kick us off with the, the German for the, of the gloss that we're going to be covering this episode? Yes. Das eben merk, hau, stich, lege, weich oder herd, indes und fahr nach, anhört, dein Krieg sei nicht gach. Was der Krieg rämt oben, nieden wird er beschämt. In allen Winden, hau, stich, schnitt, leere Winden. Auch sollst du mit prüfen, hau, stich oder schnitt. In allen Treffen, den Meistern, willst du sie effen. Thank you very much. And Steve, would you be kind enough as to give us Harry's version? Absolutely. Now remember this part. Cuts and thrusts come soft or hard. The fore, nach, and the indus don't rush to engage, but do as I say. Those who go high in the bind, shame below is all they'll find. Howsoever you will wind, cut, thrust, slice, you seek to find. Further, you should learn to choose which one is best serving you. Then whatever way you've bound, many masters you'll confound. Thank you very much. So there's, there's quite a bit to unpack here, isn't there? Especially if I pull up the notes. Yes and no. <laughs> All right, so, so a lot of these concepts we've come across before. Have we actually come across... a? Uh... Legger, as in guards or positions, before in the text. I don't think so. I think even in the list in the beginning, it says um, Fiohu. It says Alber. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. Okay, uh, sweet. Yeah, and the gloss, I'm pretty sure it just lists as uh, four guards. Okay, we, we've definitely come across soft and hard before, haven't we? Yes-ish. Bornakanindes. They've been touched upon before. Craig is new. Yeah. So let's pick up with with the Krieg then. So Krieg is an interesting one. Um, Steve and I had a giant argument about Krieg a couple of months ago, but I think we've come to an agreement on the conclusion since. Uh, Krieg seems to be defined here as being like just winding from opening to opening, switching from target to target with the blade. Um, so it's possibly just synonymous with windings or with moving between a series of windings. Uh, which Do you is need to have a, a bind according to that definition or that understanding? That's a really interesting question. I would say yes. I mean, the definition that it gives here is um, the, the war is, is nothing more than the windings of the sword, I think it says there somewhere. Uh, yes, it does definitely say that. The war is not, yeah, because you shouldn't be rushed and hurrying with the war because the war is nothing other than the windings at the sword. So I think that in in the context of these, the, the war is binding stuff. So I think it definitely starts out as binding stuff. Some of the steps in it um, probably involve leaving the bind, and we might come into that a little bit later, uh, potentially. Sure. Um, one of the interesting questions here is whether the war is a specific play, like a specific transition or order of movement between openings, or whether it's a general concept or idea. The order that's given is to thrust to the upper left, then to the lower left, then to the lower opening on the other side, depending on text, and then finally to the upper right. Um, although it does depend a bit on the specific loss, exactly what's presented. Ring X skips part of it. Ring X skips part of it, and also he doesn't specify left side uh, at the beginning. Although he implies it by the end, so who knows. So one interesting thing is that in Paulus Hector Meyer's Latin, um, I'm advised that the 
word for is that they describe it as continuous blows or repeated blows by talking about the war. And then they he clarifies that these repeated blows are what Germans call war. So A, that he's not sure that the reader is familiar with it, but also B, instead of the word that he uses for winding, he feels the need to insert a different but very similar idea of repeated strikes. So you think his war is more like... I don't want to say, well, I'll say it, overwhelming your opponent by, like, doing many attacks to different openings? Yeah, the sense that I get from that is he wants to express war as being sort of a flurry of blows. That's that's not really inconsistent with either of the cases that were given for it, except for the part where it says the war is nothing more than the windings of the sword. Right, and, and he has a different word for winding, so he knows what winding is, but let me up the Latin there. It'll still take a minute, so we can continue the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a really interesting phrasing phrase here, which I wanted to pick up on a little bit while we're talking about the action itself, which is a phrase that's consistent in all of them, actually. So the first action you're told to do is they you start the war, you thrust at some upper opening, and then if they displace the thrust, you stay in the winding and you thrust it below. You let the point sink down and thrust at the lower opening. Um, what do people think is meant by this idea of staying in the winding? Um, Joey, do you have any thoughts? Hmm. I well, we usually interpret <laughs> interpret it as um, staying in the bind, like not changing the the direction of the or maybe the location of the strength or yeah the strength of the blade, but just um, dipping the point down. But the but the strength stays at the weakness of the opponent's sword. So it's we usually don't interpret it as um, stay in the winding, but more like stay in the bind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the way I tend to interpret this, and I think it's a phrase that turns up a couple more times somewhere elsewhere in the glosses as well, is an idea of staying in the same body position, but just moving the point around. So I've like I've you've started by winding to this high position and winding the point in, and then you can stand in that winding and you just keep everything about where you are the same and move your point. So the winding is a position. I, I I can accept that pretty much for transitioning from high to low lines. Yeah, but... and that's the only one where it specifically says to stand in the winding. The first one. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't say to stand in the winding for the other transitions. Right. So I think this is probably going to be our biggest point of disagreement on this. So there's there's a couple ways to look at this. So if we're looking at the play as a whole, you can imagine somebody binding at the sword and then winding, I'm going to say to the right side. So right side winding with crossed arms on the outside. Um, I'm not going to say Auswinden. <laughs> and then... You just did. Ah, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> And then they parry it, like standard parry, pushing it to the side. So you drop the point below, maybe drop the hands, and go into your, I guess, lower right winding and threaten them. And then they, I guess, drop down their sword on top of your blade and parry like that. So you kind of do a little disengage Durchwechseln underneath and go to the other side. Or would you say you wind to the 
you're strong to the weak and go to the other side. But anyway, um, too many actions. Then you end by going high and, and stabbing in. So I think that's probably the most surface level way to interpret this. Would would you guys agree with that? Sure, yes. I've never actually given too much thought to the particulars of the parries being involved. But sort as of... soon as you try to teach this one in class, which I've done a couple of times, you have to start caring about the parries. And yeah, I basically th see it as like they're trying to chase your sword and so you keep on chasing away from it. Right. Yeah, once once you um once you started trying to figure out what the specific parries are, you find that like some things work better than others. Before I wanted to say what what I wanted to say, um do you have any comments on this, Michael? I don't have a current interpretation of this. What I've done in the past is the idea that you're not actually leaving your starting position, but merely chasing your point from opening to opening. And so the way I did it, and this was years ago since I last tried to interpret this, was beginning with the Bishta Kervita wine to ox and continuing from there. So you're in ox the entire time and you're merely getting pushed by your opponent's parry and finding the opening that they're not covering each time. So your opponent is sort of swinging around after you as you go from point to point. And prior to that, the, the interpretation that I'd seen that I hated was where you're actually going from hanger to hanger which is too slow and impossible to do at any kind of speed. So that idea, the idea of standing entirely in one ox and just working the point around would actually work quite well with ring excursion, where he's taken away one of the lower opening thrusts. Mm -hmm. um, you basically do a circle standing in an ox. So you start with your crossed arm ox to thrust to the upper right, their upper left side. And you have your point there. And if they push it, you drop it down low. And if they chase down, you circle back up. Well, and that's interesting because the first two thrusts are the previous play in Bishtag Kervita, right? The thrust yeah. to the upper and then to the lower is given there after he parries. So my, my real question is, why does this section even exist? Or if we're just going to do this, the previous play with one extra thrust tacked onto the end? Well, it's not, a, it's not exactly the same. This one, you don't necessarily leave the bind for this one. And for the previous one, I think they make it clear that you're disengaging off of the bind and coming below. Because otherwise, how do you get between their arms? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me let me give you let me give you my take on this, which I'm not 100% convinced about. But so it says in in Danzig and Lev, I think it's a little bit different in Maniac, but it says um, when you hew in with the Rathu, as soon as he then parries, rise with the arms and wind the point uh, to to his sword above to the upper opening of his of his left side. So again, we're binding. And I'm winding to the right side with crossed arms, if we just assume that that's the left side. Then it says, if he sets the upper stab aside. So the language here is not fazets, but um, obsets. He says obsets mm -hmm. in here. So if you take that as the same obsets and we see later, then the person's not pushing your sword further to the side. The person's rising into ox. So if you're in right ox, um, and then they they respond to this by rising up into left ox. Then we get that situation that we were talking about in the last episode, where the person rising in, into left ox is pretty much going to win most of the time. But then the next step is remain standing in the winding and let the point sink below. So 
this is kind of hard to describe without being able to see it, but if you imagine you're in the crossed arms, they're in the the open arms, your sword is on top of theirs. Um, their blade is underneath pushing you away. So you go strong to weak and um, dip your point on the inside. So now you're attacking their lower opening, and now you're on the inside of the bind. So now if they parry you, they're going to be parrying you to their right side, to your left side, which makes it very, very conducive to moving your point to the left and then rising up onto their upper left side. I don't know if that makes sense or if a visual aid okay. is needed for this. So you're basically circling under their ox and starting to work your way to openings? More or less. It's kind of like it's kind of like a mutiran, I guess, in a way, except you're on uh you have crossed arms instead of open arms and you're doing it on the right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Does that it could make work. any sense? Or there's definitely there's a play in Ring X Snack Horizon, which is basically a mutarian with crossed arms. I think it's it's kind of similar to that. Yeah, obviously he doesn't do a bunch of other transitions off the end of it. Right. I probably need to see it in person, but it definitely seems plausible. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been going with lately. And in that interpretation, for the first one, you do stay in the same winding. You stay in that in the um, upper right crossed arms winding. But then when they when they parry the lower stab, then you kind of wind to your left side with with open arms, and then you can end up by sinking the point in above. Yeah, the way I usually put this when I write classes about it is that you do like the first couple with the cross arms and, and the second couple with the uncrossed arms. Yeah. And the uncrossing happens when you're changing low targets. Right. And that kind of, it kind of splits the difference. So uh, Michael mentioned before the uh, going to each hangar and, and how it's slow. It is slower, but if you stay in it for the first one, and go down and then switch sides, it kind of splits the difference, I think. So, I mean, in any case, I don't think this full play, no matter how it's interpreted, I don't think this is ever going to be something that comes up in its entirety in a full speed like fencing situation, because there's just too much going on. Yeah, there's too many if-then statements. My idea of it is that it's just supposed to be a sort of drill that you that's supposed to be practiced to get you used to the idea of going from opening to opening. It's not describing a fight. That's always been my impression of it also. It's just a drill. Yep, yep. Alright, should we should we move on to the, the three wounders? So I have the Latin text up here that I mentioned earlier that I was want to throw out um, to close that loop, which is um, and I'm looking at a translation of Paulus Hector Meyer's Latin translation of You'd love that was done by Kendra Brown and Rebecca Garber. Um, and actually, it looks like he uses both winding and, uh, which is uh, intorsionibus, and continuous strikes. And both of them are supposed to mean um, bellum or warfare, which, as an extra funny note, it also means beautiful. So Aww. we sometimes translate it as the beautiful war. Aww. But yeah, so he says that you were able in the winding and continuous strikes to seek any action we Germans call beautiful warfare at the closest exposed opening. I wonder if part of that actually might be a way to translate this play into a game where you're not allowed to thrust. 
Hmm. Explain. No, I don't accept any context here. <laughs> um, so if you like the the way this play is written, right, is very much a point point from opening to opening to opening. Um, whereas you can definitely do something where you're working cuts or the thread of cuts, like chambering in front of different openings to move your way around somebody and eventually they get stuck and don't chase and then you can make a hit. The Latin translation is not shy about thrusting though. This is not a yeah. There's no there's no trying to convert everything to cuts like Joachim Meyer. No, I'm not saying Joachim Meyer is happy to stab a guy. Well he's talking about intorsionos like twisting as well, isn't he? Yeah, intorsionibus means twisting or turning. Yeah. Or twirling. Um, so he said he says that like you can do that or you can do the continuous strikes thing and they're both the same thing, right? That's what you Yeah, it's a puzzling section, really. Um, but it, that, that's one way of reading it. Uh, he seems to use Krebus Ictibus in a few places instead of winding, where he wants to really evoke the idea of making several attacks continuously. Sort of uh 327A's frequency motus idea. Yeah. Um, he seems to like to use continuous blows there in place of winding, or in addition to winding. Potentially, yeah. Whereas one so of I, th- other... I think it's mostly the translator trying to convey the sense that he was given in addition to the actual words. Yeah, if the original Latin doesn't have so much of a sense of blows as in cuts, then that's less of a thing. But otherwise, one hypothesis would be that it's a way to expand the scope to also give you a cut-based version of the action. Uh, so that there's an interesting thing in the German, right, where how is a very, fairly specific sort of swinging action, cutting action, and schlag is a all-purpose, anytime something hits something else verb. And ictibus, ictus in Latin seems to be a similar thing um, in terms of any any kind of striking concept could be fit into that word. And the, the definition is like a whole page long for that reason. Oh. I, so it's not I had the, specific. I had the other end of the stick that how that hewing was kind of ambiguous because boars hew as well, whereas schlagen hitting is just hewing is like rotational. Schlagen schlagen is like physical impact and can be any kind of physical yeah. impact, whereas hewing is like rotational, and but might or might not even hit. Johanna, what do you have to say about this? <laughs> I was just thinking about it. I think um, there are regional differences um, for for today's Ah. meaning of the words. So for me, (laughs) I'm from the southern German speaking area. Um, I use both words. I use schlagen and I use hauen. I use schlagen when I talk about um, punching someone. And I use hauen... Mm, more generally. So I think, well, from, in my opinion, Schlagen needs a fist. <laughs> um, Hauen doesn't. So Isn't, isn't Schlagen also we, used for like music and stuff as well? Like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's like a, a hit in music, like a, a pop track, is my understanding. What about, what about Stoss? Because isn't that the closest thing to punching in the, in the books? Stoss in in RDL never really is used to mean punch. Um, I think usually in these sources it's used to indicate when you're th- like 
when you're grappling. So like in the inverter, you shove somebody, you grab their elbow and you shove them over your left foot. You stoss them over your left foot. Right, and several times you stoss your pommel to move your sword. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. Um, and in other sources, like in the um, in the Dresden gloss, they use it to mean uh, thrusting with the point a lot, as uh, with other sources. But in RDL, it's never used to mean uh, thrust with the point. We're talking about hewing and um, and schlagen. What yeah. about what about stoss? 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 Stoss. Ah, okay. So in uh, I know in 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 saber sources, um, stoss is usually what they say for thrust. That's quite like strange for me. I I use stoss as well, or stoss in the verb. Um, but usually when I'm like pushing someone or knocking someone over, that's um, stoßen for me. Um, but I know that in saber sources they use stoßen for thrusting, and something I don't know who was it was it Kendra uh, Kendra who asked. Um, we also use the word stoßen for the kind of movement you do in uh, billiards or in pool. So it's 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 a bit oh, of a okay. thrusting movement. Hmm. Isn't like um. Later, when they do like German uh, rapier and maybe small sword, do they call that? Uh, don't they call that Stoßfechten? Yeah, like, they do. Thrust they do. So it's very closely related to thrusting, but like as opposed mm-hmm. to, uh, I think Hiebfechten. Hiebfechten. Yeah. Stoßfechten. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it does mean um, thrusting. Mm, not here in Austria, I'd say, but. Yeah, but I think in in the um, upper parts of of Germany. That's interesting that you say that because in in the RDL glosses, uh, again, it never really means. Um, actually, I don't know about armored and uh, and mounted. I'll have to look through them. But in the longsword glosses, it never means to stab, but it is used to mean pushing someone over your leg in in a grapple or uh, pushing your pommel under. Shoving, I think, is what it translated as in that case. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm shoving, oh, oh yeah, maybe shoving. So if I'm if I'm shoving someone or give someone a shove, um, I'd say that's stoßen, like a pushing, pushing or knocking mo- uh, movement. Right. So why are we talking about this again? Oh, well, I don't I know. Remember. Three three wounders, right? This came oh, yeah. out of uh, this came out of Intorsionibus and uh, the Meyer Latin translation. All Ictus right. Yeah. Something I want to bring up just before we move on to the three wounders is the uh, the very first part of this thing, which we kind of skipped over. Um, and there's this idea of um, uh, when he binds on your sword, um, you mark precisely whether they're soft or hard. And it's very clear that you mark just whether you're soft or hard, and you mark it very carefully. Um, and that's pretty consistent between the um, the glosses, uh, all, all four of the main ones say that. So I find that an interesting parallel. One, why is this soft and hard instead of weak or strong? And two, why is this the only thing you're supposed to notice, this like binary um, uh, setup? Would be the two sort of open questions there, I think. Yeah, I think. So I have, I have um, an idea that whenever we're given a decision of, of like different things that we can do, there's always really only two choices. So 
we'll see later in the in the fair how they have like the section where you have four choices, but <laughs> and I'll try to I'll try to explain my way out of that when we get there. But in general, when when we're given a decision, it's only two choices, and when we feel we're just feeling soft or hard. Oh. Is it even really a choice if you're just told to to recognize a situation and behave appropriately? Wouldn't a choice be like you can do this or this rather than if he is then? Well, it, it's still kind like of like in the app Maybe That's too deep of a question for me. But like it's there's oh. definitely a sort of you're only making a binary recognition, right? You're not trying to differentiate twelve different grades of pressure like Default does. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I think we talked about this in an earlier episode. Yeah, for, for, for me, having a a simple thing to recognize is an advantage in make in decision making. Right. Should we talk about uh, not being rushed in your war? Ooh, yeah. Uh, yes, I'd like to actually bring that up as well. Okay. Do you want to talk about it first? No, go, go, go. you started. Okay, so so this is going to get into some some in-depth stuff, which we're not going to we're probably going to talk about more when we get to Nachheisen, because in-depth is not really explained until like more than halfway through the gloss, which if you noticed, it wasn't really explained when we talked about the five words. They just kind of brought it up and never explained what it is. They explained the other four, but not in-depth. So not rushing your war to me means when you're in a bind, you have to. So in order to feel, it takes time. It takes time to feel. So don't rush. Would would mean don't immediately don't have something in your head and immediately do it, no matter what. But um, take the time to feel. But when you're taking the time to feel, still act immediately because you because you're you're trained so well in your responses that. You act. You can feel immediately and act in this, but don't rush. If that makes sense. Yeah, the idea of like not. In some ways, this is a way you can read the uh, the "Don't Rush Your War" um, stuff as a admonition against eyes closed fencing. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, take the time to work out what you should actually be doing instead of just doing something that you've pre-planned and is maybe completely wrong for the situation, because that way you'll not get ruined for um, making the wrong decision or having pre-made the wrong decision, I guess. One of the other interesting questions I think about this is why does it talk so much about not rushing upwards? Um, or the idea of going high, meaning you get shamed or attacked below. I, I sort of feel that maybe there's a strategic choice in a lot of the winding plays to take your hands high. So. Yeah, but- Maybe if there was a cultural phenomenon of standing there doing Zwerchkopter stuff, then this gives you a, an option to deal with that. Well, in the play below, uh, it's the war play that we already talked about, which you're um, after you do the winding and they parry it, you're going low. So it lines up with the gloss, but the gloss doesn't really explain what it means by being shamed below if you go high. And then later on, doesn't it say something like uh, in the Uberlauf and it says the opposite? Yeah, that was something I was going to bring up. Actually, I have a note in my notes just saying Uberlauf and question mark. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, there's an interesting an interesting tension there where I think possibly one of the things is the idea of like here you're rushing away basically, like lifting up too high is taking and too early is taking you away from somebody. Uh, I mean, I I've got a an explanation as to why it has a shame below, which is that next week's episode, which is about Actually, no, it is this week's episode anyway. Sorry. It goes on to say, in all Treffen, then my stern to say, Effen. You'll trick the masters, ape the masters, or whatever. It's just to have a little thematic link there when memorizing the poem. It's a strong argument, to be fair. And yep. silence. Yes. <laughs> well, you, you made a perfect point. So, uh, three wounders? Three wounders. Slices never happen, don't count. Go ahead, Michael. I just want to throw out an idea into the room, which is in, and I was quite excited, I was looking for this document, um, which is by uh, Werner Ubershaw, who's a German HEMA practitioner, put out this excellent semi-critical edition of the Zedel several years ago, um, which is all in German. But he suggests that the phrasing might be intended to mean Whoever aims at the war will be ashamed both above and below. Um, so he breaks the phrases differently. So whoever seeks the war um, will be embarrassed above or below. And he lines it up in a footnote with the um, statement about not seeking the war too hastily and, and so on. So if you rush to the war, then you're going to be ashamed in all of your openings, as opposed to trying to say, go high and get shamed below. That's interesting. Well, that that lines up. So, I think it might have been last episode, but I mentioned that Ringek likes to restate the gloss, or sorry, restate the the title, sometimes exactly, sometimes in its own words. And in this, actually, they all say this. Um, at the end, it says, "In this way, he will be shamed above and below in the war if you otherwise can correctly perform the movements." So. That that lines up with the gloss, with with maybe what the glossators um, thought right. that Zettel was talking about. Yeah, I think it just says um, it doesn't matter where you go in your <laughs> um, facets, and you'll get shamed or hit. Yeah. So yeah. So just a thought. I'm not sure because there are several places in the middle in the gloss in the gloss where they seem to contrast above and below, and this could easily be one of them, but also it might not. Wanted to put that out there. Cool. Three cool. wounders? Yeah. <laughs> so, three wounders. Hit, stab, slice. We can forget slicing. Nobody ever sees it. It's just thrusts that miss. I have had slices scored marching people out of the ring on them. I mean, that's the only way I've had slices scored, but it does totally work. <laughs> what, is a ring out? I like a guy went a guy went high. Uh, I sliced his wrists and marched him out of the ring on it. Uh, they they they're also terrible because if you cut the arms then hit the head, you only get points for the arm hit. So why bother? I mean, our our hand drucken like hand presses, which we'll come to later, I'm sure. Are they like a separate subset of slices? Well, they're definitely yeah. not a wounder in this sense. I think I mentioned this idea earlier, but um. The way I frame this to people now when I'm teaching about this stuff is that the idea of the three wounders is to discuss three different ways of moving a sword to make a touch. 
Um, so you can move it uh, along the length of the sword towards the point. You can move it along the width of the sword towards the, like along the plane of the cross guard. And those are a stish, a thrust, and a schnitt, a slice. And you can also rotate it around kind of the cross guard tilt, shilt intersection, uh, which is a how and a rotation. And so from that perspective, the exact applications of those, whether you're using them to touch or to displace a blade or to create a threat that's going to draw a parry that you're going to make a new touch on or something, doesn't really matter so much. Like I push my sword forward, stitch direction, you push it sideways, I rotate it to cut behind your blade and make a touch. Um, but by moving between those three forms of movement, I can work my sword into the opening, whatever that opening happens to be. I, I think a slice can also be like the sliding against an object. So I guess a, a, a perpendicular along the surface or sorry, parallel along the surface, in addition to a perpendicular movement, like the, you know, well, so first of all, when, when people imagine a slice, they imagine that parallel movement. So you're placing the blade on something, like you're cutting a piece of steak and you move it across that thing. Yeah, so that's definitely I, the modern conversation of slice. Yes. So what, what you mentioned, I think, is that um, the slice is just placing the blade on it and pressing straight in, right? Uh, yeah, although not necessarily stri strictly on a surface. I'm not talking about like touching a surface with this. I'm right. talking about the three, like if you take a sword and you want to move it, you basically have these three axes of movement on the sword in terms sure. of things you can yeah. do, which will put the edge on a target. You can, the edge of the point on a target, you can move it straight forward towards the point, you can move it along towards the edge, or you can rotate it. Sure. Right. It's worth mentioning that the these are rare, are not always used. So the English translations we give these words make them sound like they're things you're doing to your opponent. This is how you harm him. But what actually comes out in the gloss often is that you they have a, they use words like schlagen for the part where you actually hit the other guy's body, and not verbs like howen. So the cut you're doing is a cutting motion, but it's not like cleaving. And the the stos or the um, stick is a thrusting motion, but it's not stabbing, so on. Um, yeah. There's not a lot of evidence that, that a lot of these techniques are specifically things that are going to murder a guy. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to mention that I think a slice can sometimes be like what people expect it to be. Like sometimes they'll say uh, withdraw with the slice. And in that yeah, case, maybe. I think it's it's like the common type that you would think. Although like I'm not sure I agree with that, but we'll come to that when we come to those plays. Yeah. For this for this particular section, I find it works quite well if you treat these as three axes of movement, not necessarily three different like touches you're making to the person. Um, and you have this idea of I'm going to, from whatever bind I have and whatever feeling I get based on soft and hard, I can move my sword in one of these three ways to bring the edge or point in contact with you. And I'm going to do whichever one of those three is appropriate. And if you start to prevent the one I'm doing, in the process of preventing it, you will create, the opening will change and a different one will allow me to now reach the target. And you see that in Ring and Lev where they say, you know, and when someone displaces the one, then you hit them with the other. So if one displaces your thrust, then conduct the hue. Stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I can, I have a bind and I can push forward with my point. I can stitch towards somebody. And as they push it aside, they're closing the opening for the 
thrust, but by turning it, by beginning a rotation of the sword instead, I'm now moving towards the opening again. I think my take, more general takeaway, sort of tactically, strategically from this section is that in longsword fencing, well, what, what revised by the gloss, by the Zettel, is to have the initiative and to be attacking. And kind of like Dustin Regan did a really interesting challenge slash thought experiment years ago that he bet somebody that he could double them out of so many attempts with genuine amount of money on the line. And I think it was been... 10 touches at 100 bucks a touch. I, yeah. It was an open challenge that he uh, issued to anybody. And it's now been like five plus years, a decade, whatever, and nobody's taken him up on this. Isn't, but it kind of, and partly it was to do with judging, blah, blah, blah. But the idea is definitely there that in longsword fencing, it's an awful lot easier to make an attack that lands than it is to parry, to make a, def- a, a defense that works. So this is kind of like the idea that strategically it's better to be on the offensive. And so with this noble war idea that you're moving from attack to attack, not rushing it, but you're, you're making sure that they never get a chance to, to start reposting against you. And that with your attacks, you can flow from one type of attack to another at the same opening if they react. While sensing soft and hard and not rushing. Yeah. I mean, this breaks down when people are full of adrenaline and stuff. Yeah. Well, you can you can train yourself to do it full of adrenaline. Especially the attack, the like transitions between types of movement. That's pretty easy to do under speed. I'm I'm more mean getting an opponent that recognizes when they're being attacked. And well, that's that's a different problem. So probably with a lot yeah. of this, um, uh, with a lot of the transitioning between action type stuff that we're talking about here. Like starting a thrust and trans- transition, starting with the linear action, the thrust and transitioning to a, a cue, a cut, a rotational action. Um, that's something you can kind of do without the opponent recognizing. They especially don't need to recognize the second half of it. They need to recognize the first half because their reaction to the first half gives you the opening for the second half. But the second half, you just make the touch. Um, and they don't need to recognize anything at all. You can set that up quite efficiently in practice with a transition like that. Like, I. We bind. I'm going to stick my point towards your face, and as soon as I start to feel your pressure, I cross my hands and snap the edge in instead. Uh, type actions. Cool. Does anybody have anything else to add? Or should we think about wrapping up? Oh, there's a nice little uh, parallel here, which is that this uh, calls forward to the very end of the gloss. And I know Michael Chedester loves the parallels between the Zornhouse stuff and the windings at the end. And this has an explicit call forward in three of the text transitions. That's true, I do. Uh, although Yudlev makes a mistake and misquotes the verse there, which is funny, but not particularly important. What does he mess up? Uh, so it says, how you shall drive the windings and how many there are, you shall find described in the last technique of the recital, which says, whoever drives well and correctly breaks, dot, dot, dot. Um, whereas Yudlev says, whoever well hangs, dot, dot, dot which I don't think is actually a verse, but if it was, it wouldn't be the last one in the recital. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, this, this sounds like a perfect point to wrap it up.
apologies to Steve, because I think you'll have to do about 3,000 more edits on this than a regular episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Thank, thank you. I'm, I'm just volunteering you to edit this as well. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like doing it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much to our listeners as well uh, for sitting through this. This has been episode eight now of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Mike Smorge, and our panel today has been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.